The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 15, 11 to 32. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and, spoke, and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Perry. As Christian, men Christian mentioned, I'm John Arndt. I'm one of your elders here at the Old Hickory campus. Um, and what I'd like you to do as we open God's word, if you would pray with me. Our Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Let the time we spend together produce fruit, produce hope, produce life. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Now, uh, behind me, I believe, is a famous painting by Rembrandt, and it's entitled The Return of the Prodigal Son. And in 1986, Henry Nouwen, a Dutch-born Catholic priest, 
professor at Harvard, pastor and author, had an opportunity to see this painting, which hangs in a museum in St. Petersburg, Russia. His visit became so much more to him that as he studied this painting, which is nearly life-size, this thing is six foot by eight foot. And the manner in which Rembrandt painted the key figures, and in particular, the father and the prodigal son, provides a vivid picture of Jesus' parable recorded in Luke. And, and so, now one noted the weariness of the son, the ragged clothes, the worn out shoes, the prodigal on his knees, preparing to ask forgiveness of the father, his head resting on the father's chest, and then the hands of the father in particular. These particularly struck uh, Nowen as how they were placed. He looked at the left hand, which is touching the son's shoulder with a firm and strong grip. The fingers are spread out, covering a large portion of the prodigal's shoulder and back. And this firm grip seems to communicate a certain strength. And the right hand doesn't hold or grasp. The fingers are close together. They appear to rest gently upon the prodigal's shoulder. It's a consoling, tender, comforting touch. And so Nowen's encounter with the painting and then his study of the parable led to his writing a book entitled, as you'd imagine, The Return of the Prodigal Son, but it's subtitled A Story of Homecoming. And Nowen points out that if there is a return, if there is a homecoming, there must be a leaving as well. And so this morning, I want us to look at the leaving, the far country, and the return. So, returning is a homecoming after home leaving, the rejoicing and immense joy in welcoming back the lost son hides the immense sorrow that has gone before after the leaving. We read, there was a man who had two sons, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. It's really difficult for us to realize fully that what is happening here is an unheard of event. It is hurtful, it's offensive, it's even radical. It's a radical act for the son in this particular culture. His leaving, as he does, is really tantamount to wishing his father was dead. The younger son then takes a journey into a far country. And, and now one points out that this is much more than a desire just to see the world. It's a drastic cutting loose from the way of living, thinking, and acting that has been handed down to this son, handed down to him for generations. And so it's more than just disrespect. It's almost like a betrayal of the treasured values of his family, his community, his faith. It's a defiant rebellion. He rejects his heritage, preferring the far country and all that the far country has to offer. Now the far country is the world in which everything considered holy, those lessons that the prodigal learned at home are totally disregarded. The far country rejects and disregards the values that have been learned and lived since he was a child. But as we look more closely at the younger son, perhaps we may get a glimpse of ourselves. 
not physically leaving for the far country, but more like a spiritual leaving home. There's a longing, there's a longing in all of our hearts to hear the Heavenly Father's voice telling us, telling me, you are my beloved, on you my favor rests. It's the voice we hear when we are spiritually at home. It's heard through God's Word. It's heard in our prayers with the Father. It's heard in the quietness of our own hearts. When we hear these words, when we hear His voice, we know then we are home. We are where we belong and that we have nothing to fear. We can, as David writes in this Psalm, in Psalm 20, in this 23rd Psalm, I can walk in the valley of the shadow of death. I can walk in the valley of shadows and fear no evil, for my God is with me. But I find myself, and suspect you too may find yourself, at times, I find myself leaving home time and time again, running off to the far country, seeking to hear that voice, that searching for acceptance. I become deaf to the voice that calls me beloved, thinking I can find that somewhere else. And, and, and I have to ask, though, why, why would I leave? Why would I leave this home where the Father speaks to my heart? The true voice of the Father is soft and gentle. It speaks to me in my heart. And it's not a voice that's loud and boisterous, forcing itself on me and demanding my attention. It's as the prophet Elijah learned in 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah is fleeing from King Ahab and Queen Jezebel who are threatening his life. And so God instructs Elijah to go to Mount Sinai and there in a cave, God meets with him. And God instructs Elijah who, who, who longs to connect with God because he's fleeing for his life and, and he's, he's desperate. He doesn't know what to do. He wants a word from God. And so we read this. God instructs Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And, and so Elijah, who was so desperate to hear from God, thinks that God will come in, in the rush of the wind. And this isn't the kind of wind that we see that creates a tornado and tears limbs from trees and knocks houses down. This is more forceful, more powerful. It's the kind of wind that we read here, shears rocks. It breaks mountains apart. It is incredibly forceful. And God wasn't there. And then he sends an earthquake, something that splits the earth open the power and force behind that and yet God's voice was not there and then he sends a fire and, and we have such a great picture of that in the terrible tragedy in Maui how it just so utterly destroyed the face of the earth there and yet this is more powerful than that fire this is the fire of God 
And when it rushes past him, the heat, the intensity, and the thermal wind that comes with that. And what Elijah discovered, God's not there either. But he was, as the American Standard Version translates, God was in the still, small voice. The still, small voice that's hidden in our hearts. And it's that still small voice of the Almighty, of our loving Heavenly Father that reaches into the depths of our hearts and tenderly speaks to us. But there are many other voices, voices that are loud and boisterous, and they are full of promises that are very, very seductive. Voices that say, John, go out and prove yourself. Prove you have worth. These are the same voices that call to us. They are always there, always seeking to reach into those inner places where we begin to question our own goodness and we begin to doubt our self-worth. These voices want me to prove myself and to others that I am worthy of being loved. I am worthy of acceptance. They keep pushing me to do everything possible to gain acceptance, that I have to earn it. I have to earn it with my own efforts. I have to earn it with my hard work. They keep pushing me to do everything possible to gain this acceptance. They deny loudly that the Father's love is a totally free gift. And so when do I leave home? It's every time I lose faith in the voice that calls me his beloved. And it's every time I follow the voices that offer a great variety of ways to win the love and acceptance that my heart so desires and longs for. When I forget that voice that calls me beloved, that voice that loves me unconditionally, I can find myself being pulled into the far country. And it's not hard to know when it's starting to happen. It happens when my anger begins to be stirred. It happens when resentment begins to well up inside of me or jealousy or even revenge may begin to creep in. It's when those desires that plague all men call to me, those desires that John describes in his first letter in chapter two. He says, he describes them as this, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. It's from the far away place. And the flesh, the desires of the flesh are those strong desires for worldly things, for worldly pleasures, to collect those things that the world says are valuable and important. And the desire of the eyes is those things that I see, and when I see that you have them and I don't, I begin to envy and covet those things. And the pride of life is that desire for power and prestige and worldly honor and accolades. And so... It happens more easily than I imagine or realize. And it's not uncommon for these dark emotions or passions or feelings to rise up. And before I realize it, I find myself wondering, why, why did that person hurt me? Or why was I rejected? Or why didn't someone pay attention to me? And I can find myself brooding over someone else's success or brooding over my loneliness. I have a fear of being disliked or blamed or put aside or passed by and ignored. 
And so I find myself developing strategies to defend myself, to secure the love and acceptance I think I need and deserve. Or I observe other people who seem to be better off than me, and I wonder, how, how can I get there? How can I get that? How can I attain those things? And then, well, why didn't it happen to me? Why, why didn't I get that? And so I try hard to please, I try to be successful, I try hard to be recognized, but if I fail in my efforts, then I feel resentful or jealous of others who have achieved these things. And at once I begin to realize I have moved away from my father's home, searching for acceptance and unconditional love where it cannot be found. I've left home and I've gone to the far country. And so let's talk about the far country. Let's take a look at that. As long as I keep looking about and asking, do you love me and do you accept me? I continue to give power to those voices in the far country because those voices respond with a myriad of ifs. Yes, John, you are loved and accepted if you're good-looking, you're intelligent, or you're wealthy. And yes, John, you're loved and accepted if you have a good education, a good job, or good connections for me. And yes, you're loved and accepted if you produce much, if you sell much, if you buy much. And apparently, Amazon really loves my household. But I too become the prodigal every time I search for unconditional love and acceptance where it can't be found. The love and acceptance in the far country is always, will always, be conditional. The younger son found that out. In verse 14 we read, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So he had spent everything. Those whom he thought loved and accepted him disappeared. They lost interest in him. His fame and fortune, gone. His appeal to those in the far country faded. They only noticed him and accepted him as long as he had position and wealth. They only noticed him as long as he could be used for their purposes. And now, Just now, he notices how really alone and how truly lost he is. When famine covered the far country, he found he had no more resources. He was spent. We read, he began to be in need. He learned the harsh lesson that in the far country, without his wealth, without his position that it provided, no one cared. In his mind, his only option was to hire himself out to become a day laborer with a pig farmer. And there is hardly a more degrading job for a Jewish man than feeding pigs. He had finally reached the bottom. And in fact, when he says he longed to eat the pods, he was feeding the pigs. My understanding, these were carob pods. And carob pods are indigestible by humans. You can't eat them. And so even the food he longed for that he was feeding the pigs 
He couldn't even improve his situation by availing himself to the very food he was feeding these pigs. And so, one commentator points out that this is a picture of someone who is hopeless and in despair like those who are without Jesus Christ in their lives, who are lost in the far country. But the only voice he was now hearing was not all those voices out there in the far country. The voice that he was now hearing was the voice inside that tells him he must do the best he can. He must make do as best he knows how because he can't go back. What he did was so unthinkable, there's no way he could go back. Or could he? There's a truth that begins to surface. Whatever he had lost, whatever he had given up, no matter how far he traveled into that far country, there's one fact that still remained that won't change. He is still his father's son. So in verse 17, we read this. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. And the New American Standard translated is, the young man came to his senses. He came to his senses. The voice of the father in his heart and mind was faint, but it was still there. That voice that calls him the beloved. The voices in the far country had drowned out that soft, warm whisper of the father's voice. And so the younger son reasons in verse 18 and 19, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He knows he's failed. He counts the cost of his actions. He's come to his senses. He has sinned against not only his father, but against his heavenly father as well. And he reasons that if he were to return, and if he were to plead for forgiveness, and if he acknowledged his own unworthiness due to his actions, maybe the father will forgive him. He began to reclaim his identity as a son, but he still saw the father's love and forgiveness as conditional. That it would only be possible if he were to approach his father in the way that he had reasoned in his own heart. He sees himself only as worthy to be a day laborer and not even a household servant. And so we come to the return, the homecoming. So verse 20, we read, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So as the younger son approaches the father who appears to have been looking for him, hoping for his return, sees him when he is still a long way off 
And one commentator says the father runs to him as a means of protection because when he left, he disgraced his community, his village, his family, and to prevent any retribution or punishment as he approaches, the father runs out to show the community, this is my son returned. He is my beloved. And he comes back to the village and to their home with the son. And so Jesus tells us the father felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And here we see the great truth in this parable. It is the boundless love and compassion of our Heavenly Father that transforms death into life. The boundless love and compassion of God the Father that transforms death into life. And so in the painting, we see the younger son exhausted from life and weary from travel. He's on his knees. He's preparing to ask forgiveness. And the father cuts him off. In verse 20, we read, but the father said to his servants, he never lets the son finish his speech. God's word, though, is filled with buts. And when it is, when we read that in Scripture, the action immediately shifts. It's passages like Genesis 50, verse 20, where Joseph, after being sold into slavery and now in a position of power, says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And after 150 days of floating on the water, in Genesis 8.1, we read, but God remembered Noah. And then in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul writes, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So the father's interruption changes the course of action with the prodigal son. We see the father tenderly and yet firmly drawing the prodigal close, holding him, the son's head on his chest, and he draws the son close to his heart. And so all at once, um, we see this picture of reconciliation starting. And remember the manner in which the painting depict the hand, depicted the hands? It helps us understand the connection between the father and the son. The left hand was touching the son's shoulder and was firm and strong, communicating he's home, he's safe. And the right hand doesn't hold or grasp, but it was tender. It was a comforting touch. It was letting him know that he is loved and he is forgiven. And so all at once, this picture of reconciliation comes together. We see forgiveness and inner healing taking place. The father calls for a robe, which signifies honor for the son. He's restoring his honor. He's beginning to restore his position. He calls for a ring, signifying authority. And this in, self, in itself is incredible. He calls for the son to have the signet ring placed on his finger, which means all that he has squandered is gone. But the father now says, you now have access to all that I have. It is all once again yours. And then most of all, he calls for shoes. Now, what's significant about that is that slaves and servants don't wear shoes. Only the family and the son gets shoes. And what that immediately communicates to the people there is the father had forgiven him and he was fully restored as a son. 
He would not be a day laborer or servant. He was his father's son, fully restored. With this, the father expresses great joy and calls for celebration. So we don't know what the younger son is now thinking, but he once again hears so clearly that he is loved and he is accepted. It's the voice that reminds him that he is the father's beloved and with him he is well pleased. The parable focuses on the father's great compassion for his children, for his sons, for his daughters. The father, our heavenly father, is always looking for us. He is looking for you and me with outstretched arms as the father in the parable is to receive us back and whisper to us, you are my beloved, on you my favor rests. I'm not sure if I've ever really knelt down and let myself be held by a loving, forgiving God. When I looked at the painting and see the prodigal on his knees collapsed before the father and the father holding him close, I'm not sure I've ever been in that spot to allow myself to be held that close to hear those words. And so still I struggle at times to get past those feelings of unworthiness, past the thoughts that I must still earn it, that I don't deserve it, to that place of complete surrender and trust as the prodigal had gotten to. But this table set before us, this table before us reminds me, reminds us, it is true. I am the beloved of the Father with whom he is well pleased. You are the beloved of the Father with whom he is well pleased. And so for some of you here today, your life journey may have only led you into the far country. You may have never heard those words that you are my beloved child. Perhaps this is a day you hear more clearly the Father calling you and saying, and his Son saying to you, come to me You come to me who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you long to hear the Father's words of love and acceptance, to learn of the Father's love, forgiveness, and acceptance, see me or one of the other elders or pastors. Let us share with you the road out of the far country. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, because of the shed blood of your only begotten Son, His sacrifice on the cross, His life, His death, His resurrection, we are drawn close to You. And it's You who says to us those sweet words that we are Your beloved and with us You are well pleased. Father, thank You for this day, for this time. Thank You for Your Word and for the assurance that we are Yours. May we always hear that still, small voice that tells us that we are the beloved. For it's in Christ's name alone we pray. Amen.